This morning, I would just ask you a simple question. How many of you have ever driven across Nebraska? Yep, right here. Two of you? Well, two and more, presumably three. Not bad. You, did you have your hand up, too? Corner. A corner counts, you know? Across is across. So there's no, there's no minimum. We got a lot of people driven across the state of Nebraska. You are from Nebraska, which helps. So it doesn't matter if you're from Nebraska, from Nebraska, presumably visiting, presumably visiting. I, too, have driven across Nebraska once. It was in December. I was a college student. Friends of mine and I were going snow skiing in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and there's not a lot of ways to easily get from East Tennessee to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, other than I-80. And so we pick up a friend in Jackson, which is a little east of Memphis. So we drive all the way across Tennessee, get a friend near Memphis, and then start going like this, and then across to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And I had not really ever paid necessarily a lot of attention to like Nebraska geography or Nebraska topography. I didn't really know much about it. But in December, it's pretty simple. It's flat and it's dark and brown. The plants aren't there. The trees are, you know, leafless. It's a very flat, simple place. And I was there at 4.30 in the morning when I was paying the most attention, stopping at a gas station. We pull over. Those of you who are from there, you can fill me in. But my experience was you drive, and you see a billboard that says, next gas station, 138 miles. Next gas station, 172 miles. And that was a little bit of my experience. Now, Lincoln, I'm sure, is different. Some other places are different. But where we were, once you get out past like Lincoln, it's just empty. We stopped for gas. It's 4.30 in the morning. I've been driving. What helps me wake up at a time like that is not a cup of coffee, but the brutal Canadian wind that's like a special delivery shooting across Nebraska while you pump the gas. This is not a state where they have people pumping the gas for you, so you get to just stand out there freezing. There's not a lot to see. There's not a lot to do, and it's easy if you're in a place like that to feel lost because it's totally pitch black, and there's no sites or cities or trees or rivers or big bridges or anything to sort of orient yourself around. This is not I-95 from D.C. up to Boston, you know? Like, this is not that, if that's what you're thinking about. It's very easy to feel lost. It's very easy to even probably be lost. Now, as guys who were in college, we wouldn't have admitted to being lost, and we didn't have to worry about it because we were on I-80. You can't go wrong. It's just stay on 80, get off, get the gas, drive hundreds more miles. There's another trip I want to tell you about that someone made, which was not quite so clear, not quite so easy. Now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and he was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. This is Luke chapter 4, if you want to turn there, verses 1 through 13. And as he's in the wilderness for 40 days, he's being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and all its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I want. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus replied to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
And he brought him into Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you and on their hands, they will lift you up so that you do not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it has been stated, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Let's pray for a moment. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us with this word, this instruction from scripture. You are the one who led Jesus into the wilderness. You set this up and we need your help now to understand it and to apply it. It does have meaning for us, even if it's not our moment, even if it's not our life situation right now, even if it was 2,000 years ago, there's still something you were doing that is just as relevant to today. Please help us understand it. Some of it is, frankly, uncomfortable. It's not the sort of thing we want to imagine happening in our daily lives. It's not the sort of thing that feels very secure and safe and pleasant like we're used to when we may have pictures in our mind of the Christian life. And others of us look at it and go, what a great victory by Christ. And I pray that we'd be able to ponder both and to find our way through both opportunities and celebrate what needs celebrating and learn from what needs learning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Just a brief word, over the next few weeks, I'll be preaching from different texts. Ordinarily, I would just pick a book of the Bible and do it. Just go right through that book of the Bible. And I like that and appreciate that a lot, but the elders and I have talked and prayed and reflected deeply and thought there's a lot of teaching in God's word for his people as they go through different transitions, as they have different experiences. And there are several passages in the scriptures that we'll go through each week just to look at and say, what do God's people do? How do disciples keep following Jesus when some of what's happening around them is so different than what they were used to? And that's what we have here. I'll briefly look, I'll just briefly walk you through Luke up to this point in chapter 4. In Luke 2, Christ is 12 years old, and the Bible says he's growing in favor with God and man. You'll remember this moment where he's, you might know the story, he's in the temple in Jerusalem, surrounded by rabbis who, and he's sort of discussing and debating and dialoguing with them and learning and growing in his faith as a 12-year-old. Chapter 3, he gets baptized, and when that happens, a voice comes from heaven and says, This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Where do you think God will take Christ next? After a chapter 2 like that and a chapter 3 like that, I think Christ would be expecting something pretty incredible. But chapter 4 is what Christ gets. In chapter 4, the Spirit leads Christ straight into the wilderness all alone for a 40-day fast that ends with a surprise visit from Satan, a personal attack. How many of you would want a wilderness time all alone ended by a visit from Satan? Pretty good responses. You guys are lively, which I appreciate, you know? I was kind of like, I'm not sure I was going to go over. But I think for, for some of us, it can be sort of like, well, I don't know, I don't, you know, or something, you know. Keep in mind that you could think about it this way. You could join Emilio's team, go to South Africa, be above Cape Town, looking out at the ocean, praying, taking communion, Tori playing worship music. That's one option. You could show up on Tuesday nights for a cafe for youth, gather together. It's like Jesus' experience with the rabbis, learning, growing, studying scripture. Or option two, you could get baptized in a few weeks 
That's an excellent path. You have a deeper relationship with God. You've got believers who are hearing about baptism and understanding that you're following Jesus. Or, to put this in modern day terms, next Sunday after church, I've secured a one-way bus ticket for anybody who's interested. The door locks from the outside, and they take you to the worst possible neighborhood in Massachusetts, and Satan's driving the bus. So this is our choices. I'll repeat them for those of you who are still not sure. Youth group, baptism, or bus ride with Satan. Okay? These are our choices. How many of you want the wilderness alone with Satan? If you're still undecided, whew, this is how Christ's ministry begins. This is exactly what happens. He gets baptized. The father says, I love you. I'm so pleased with you. I'm sending you into the wilderness to be alone with Satan. Hell trembles because God became man so that we could become friends with God and be delivered from the evil one's regime. Does God have something new for you to do? What about his next plans for us as a church? I know at least one person in the church has started a new job. Another has a dream to switch careers and do something that would allow her to serve more people. Some of you have a young marriage, a young child. Some of you are recently saved. Others of you are planning to get baptized. There's some of you serving God in new ways or thinking about ways to serve God, do new things. Expect Satan's old tricks before you start the Lord's new works. Satan hopes to take you out before you even get started. And we can make a deep dive and just focus on Jesus for a second. Why would the Spirit lead Christ into the wilderness? I mean, what kind of God is this who leads faithful children straight into satanic battle? That's one of the things I couldn't shake as I looked at this passage. The Spirit led Jesus, like full of the Spirit, great. We like that sound. Led by the Spirit, that sounds great. And then it's like, how did I get here? What am I doing in this place? The temptation of Christ in the wilderness is the retelling of the ancient journey that God's people made when they left Egypt. They left Egypt, they're going toward the promised land, and they wandered for 40 years in the desert. Christ wandered for 40 days in the wilderness because Luke is being literary and literal. They were literally in the desert as the Hebrew people. Christ is literally in the wilderness, but Luke is also being literary with you. He's saying Christ's experience is a contrast from what the Hebrews had in the wilderness. Christ was full of the spirit when the people in the wilderness were not. They had tremendous faith some of the time, absolutely tremendous faith some of the time, but they had terrible faith at other times. But Christ had so much faith in the Father. Hebrews says Christ was tempted just as we are and yet was without sin. Jesus was full of the spirit, he was led by the spirit, and so the spirit recreates the temptation of Israel but this time, Jesus passes every single test. What do you think Jesus expected after his baptism? I tried to envision what's going through Jesus' mind. He gets baptized. The Father says, I love you. I'm so pleased with you. I think Jesus expected to fast for 40 days. I thought it would be, he, I think he might have said, yeah, this is the adult version of when I was 12. I'm going to really listen a lot. I'm going to grow a lot. I mean, I'll be alone fasting. You know, won't be getting my smartphone notifications. Won't be distracted by my mom wanting me to do the chores because I'm not 12 anymore. Like I get to just kind of be free and just grow. Just me and God alone. Except he didn't get that. 
fasting is not all that he experienced because when the spirit is leading our lives, unanticipated things will happen. God is behind the wheel controlling our lives. I'm going to use the illustration of a phone or a computer. God sends the updates to our lives. And the difference is, unlike version 15.7.1 or whatever other numbers and everything where you get to click, you know, and you say like, well, I'll schedule that. I'll do that tonight at 1 a.m. when I'm not using my laptop. God doesn't seem to allow scheduling of his updates. I don't understand it, but he doesn't say, when would you like to have the update? I'm going to change things in your life, but you can choose the time, like 2 a.m. while you're sleeping. Let's save it till our vacation. No, not, not on the vacation. Okay, how about right before, no, no, not at the end of school. And God's like, okay, whenever, you, you know, no, no, he just starts downloading the update. He just starts shifting pieces around. It can be your finances, it might be your spiritual growth. It might be moving, it might be your relationship with your children, it might be the job you've had for a long time or the job you wished you'd had for a long time. You want one thing, you expect one thing, you see your life moving in a direction and then you get another. And it begs the question, who's in control? Some of you could think, I've been coming to church for 20 years. I liked the way things were going. I knew the pastor, I knew Tammy. I knew them, I was experiencing them, I was close to them, I was growing in my faith. And then what happened? I mean, this was good. What are you doing? Some of you say, I was here for nine years and I was doing well. I'd overcome a bunch of stuff. I'd figured out a bunch of stuff. I was following Jesus. What's going on? It's like driving toward the canal and ending up in Provincetown. You're like, this doesn't work. Like, I know where I was going and now I'm somewhere else. This doesn't work. There are times in the Christian life when it is not what you expected. Frankly, I think you'll experience things you don't like sometimes. And the answer you'll get is the spirit is leading me. Right after high school, I started following Christ seriously late in high school, met a friend. He invited me to church. That got the wheels turning to fill the whole story in really briefly. And that's, that's just really where everything started to click for me. So junior year in high school, really encountered God. Senior year in high school, really knew him, really understand him. Things are making sense. I'm reading the Bible. I'm praying. All this stuff's starting to make sense for me. Then I graduate high school, and slowly my sense of closeness to God just got weaker and weaker and weaker. Just felt like he was getting farther and farther and farther away. And I thought, well, I must have sinned. I must have done something bad. And then I couldn't realize anything I'd done. Well, I must have bad habits, or I must be supposed to do something, or I should have said something differently or gone somewhere. Couldn't find it out, to make a long story short. It was just a wilderness. I hadn't intentionally done anything or unintentionally done anything that I was aware of. It was just a wilderness as God moved farther and farther away. But I encourage you, let yourself be led by the Spirit, not Satan, not yourself. Now, you may end up in the wrong neighborhood, so to speak. You may end up uncomfortable, unsatisfied, confused. For some of you, it's going to seem like Nebraska in December rather than Maui in January. Yeah. I hope that's fair to our Nebraska residents, our, our original <laughs> Nebraska guys. Hope you're okay with that. But Nebraska in December is available for those of you who want it. I've driven through there. In these moments, whichever it is, whatever your preference, remember you're not lost, you're led. As we're thinking about this this morning, the question is almost, are we lost or are we led? The reason that you can't 
see anything, if you find yourself in a wilderness sort of moment, the reason the place is so unfamiliar and so dark and so confusing is because it's the wilderness. You haven't been here before. You don't know where you are. You don't know how things are coming together. You don't recognize the landmarks. You don't see them at all, maybe, because it's pitch black. It's early in the morning. You just feel cold wind blowing. You've been led into an unfamiliar place. And interestingly enough, Richard read from Corinthians, and there's a time when Paul, who started the church in Corinth, he said to them, eye has not seen and ear has not heard. Eye has not seen and ear has not heard. The reason the eye hasn't seen it and the ear hasn't heard it is because you haven't been there before. You're not there yet. You haven't fully experienced what God wants to say and what God wants to show you. That's the point, really. Faith never equals sight in the wilderness situation. You haven't seen it, whatever it is, but you will. You haven't heard it, but you will. You are in a wilderness, but you will get out. When your life takes on a wilderness quality, I want to offer a few thoughts. If you've heard this passage before, these probably won't surprise you too much. And even if you just heard it this morning for the first time, what Satan's doing with Christ is, first of all, a test of his humanity. Satan tempts Christ. He says, tell these stones to become bread. Now, the reason that he does that isn't that complicated. Christ is hungry. He's gone without food for 40 days. He is hungry, the Bible says. And Satan says, well, here, fix it. And this was something Satan did with the Israelites, wanting them to trust him more than God, even though it was God who brought them out of Egypt in this wonderful exodus. So, but Satan wants them to doubt it. Now, if Jesus wasn't really hungry, which is an argument some people would make, they would try to say Jesus wasn't divine or Jesus wasn't really human. But if he wasn't really human, why did Satan say, turn these stones to bread? If Jesus wasn't really human and wasn't really hungry, why would Satan do this? What I'm bringing up here is that Satan is taught in the scriptures to be a liar, a murderer. He's taught to be this enemy of God, and, and he tries to undercut whatever is God is doing, and he especially likes to do it in clever, sneaky ways, indirect ways. So if Jesus wasn't human and Jesus wasn't hungry, you'd think Satan would just say, come on, Jesus, let's cut this charade. It's just you and me in the wilderness, just you and me in the desert. Let's just admit the truth. You're just God, or you're just a man. So just, you know, just come on, just come out with it. It would have been, had he done that, this proof. But the fact is, Jesus is not just any old human, and he's not just God in the spirit without a human identity. Satan gives us independent confirmation from somebody who doesn't really want to believe. Satan knows the truth. Christ has a human nature. And Christ is the Son of God. Christ really is hungry. He is full of the Spirit, but he's empty of food. Satan has to work with what he's given. He has to admit the truth, and he knows the truth. And instead of pushing Christ around, he's actually pushed around saying, look, I know we're in the wilderness. I wish I could lie right now, but I have to tempt Christ according to the real way that I can tempt him, which is his human nature. He's actually hungry. And what he hopes Christ will do is sacrifice the eternal for the earthly, he hopes he'll give up his sinless life, do things Satan's way, and meet his own needs, which is to make his own bread. But Christ says, no, I'm going to live in dependence on the Father. I'm not going to turn stones into bread. I'm not going to bow to Satan, and I'm not going to have distortions of my obedience. I'm just going to depend upon the Father. Notice, too, that Satan only talks about created things. 
He can't talk about anything other than stones or bread or kingdoms of the world, things that you can see and things that you can touch. That's what he can talk about because this is his realm. He's a created being. He can only have power over created things. That's why he says, turn stones to bread, throw yourself down, look at these kingdoms, worship me. All he has power over is maybe what has been created. But Jesus responds with God's word, it is written, it is written, it is written. And each of the times he quotes are from Deuteronomy, which are the places where the Hebrews were wandering through the wilderness. And Christ is quoting those scriptures from back in the wilderness journey to confront Satan in this journey, in this moment. And what he's saying is this visible life, this created moment I'm in is not the most important thing. It's not all that there is. The eternal things are most important. It's as if Jesus says, I may not have food, but I'd rather trust God. It's more like Jesus says, I may not have any kingdom. Elsewhere, Jesus says, the son of man has no place to lay his head. And it's as if Jesus is saying, I've got, I, don't, I don't even have a place to lay my head, but I'd rather have no place to lay my head and please God than have the kingdoms of the world and be disobedient. As we're in our moment as a church, keep following God, even if things aren't exactly the way you expected. Don't sacrifice the eternal for the short term, even if you're waiting. The second test is a challenge to Christ's loyalty. This also mimics the moment when the Hebrews are in the wilderness, they've left Egypt, Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, and God's speaking with him, and while he's up there listening to God and connecting with the Lord and receiving the Ten Commandments, the people are making a golden calf and worshiping it and say, this is who brought us out of Egypt. Satan says to Christ, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. That's much better than one golden calf, to be honest. I'm not sure how exactly they got deceived, but Satan has upped his game. And he says, listen, I tricked those people with like one golden calf, but you're Jesus, the son of God turned man. So I'm going to have to do this even better. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll just bow down. And Christ still says it is written. No, I won't do it. Lastly, the third temptation, Satan attacks Christ's trust in God. Satan tried to nudge Christ into misusing God's protection. This time, Satan quotes that scripture about how Satan could, I'm sorry, about how Christ could jump from a high place on the temple and angels would rescue him. They won't even let him stub his foot on a stone. But Christ truly isn't threatened. He's not actually at risk of falling. So here's the temptation. If he's not really threatened, if if Satan's just saying, throw yourself off and test God, Will Christ use God's grace to save his own neck? Or will Christ obey God and say, I'm in God's hands. We'll see what happens. Will we trust God even if he doesn't rescue us from some hard experience? Satan wants to trick us into believing that the grace of God supplies total security, even if we exercise tremendous stupidity. Throw yourself off. God will save you. Throw yourself off. Do something unbelievably stupid and watch what God will do. I think God has an unbelievable amount of grace. He's absolutely loving, absolutely powerful. But what he actually says is, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. Don't run on fool's errands. Will we trust God? Because the grace of God abounds far beyond our own security and our own faith. The lesson of Christ is the grace of God is sufficient for the unexpected hard moments. But will we trust him more than that, even if he doesn't rescue us? His grace can be enough for our struggles, but more than that, I think his grace deepens our devotion. 
makes us say, it's not just about me. It's not just about getting all my grace. So Satan's testing Christ's trust in God, saying, would you twist this to just be about you? Just save your own neck. Watch what God will do if you throw yourself into a dangerous situation. And Christ says, I'm more devoted to God than I am to my own well-being. There's something beautiful to me, too, this little word play that Jesus does with Satan. Satan quotes a scripture about Jesus jumping down and angels saving him, and he won't even hurt his foot. But Satan forgot who he was dealing with because Jesus is reminded of Genesis 3, which came way before the psalm that Satan quotes. Genesis 3 says that a day is coming when the seed, when the offspring of a human being will crush the head of the serpent, even though the serpent bites him on the heel. And part of the reason that Jesus was willing to trust God rather than say, let me fling myself off the temple, is because he already knew I'm fulfilling Genesis 3. And I know God will deliver me, and I know God will take care of me, but I'm going to let myself get struck on the foot. I'm going to get injured on my foot, like Genesis 3 promised, but I'm going to crush the serpent's head with my death and my resurrection. And Satan doesn't want to go there. <laughs> Satan wants to talk about, nah, throw yourself off. God will save you. That's a good scripture. You like quoting scripture, Jesus, throw yourself off. He will save you, right? And Jesus says, no, 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 I've got a better scripture. I've got a much better scripture. In your wilderness moments, you have the power of God. You have the wisdom of God and of help from God through the Holy Spirit. If Christ can overcome, you can overcome. This is why James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Don't worry because God can handle your wilderness moments. Put on the armor of God. Be strong in the Lord. Fight with the weapons that he supplies, namely scripture and faith and prayer. In your battle, be full of the spirit, be full of the scriptures. Jesus didn't do anything here that you can't do. I can't see anything in the scriptures that he did that any one of us couldn't do. You can be led by the spirit. You can be full of the spirit. You can empty yourself of relying on the things of this world. You can resist the devil and watch him flee from you. You're never lost because you're always led. If you think back to the beginning of this sermon, the reason that I was in Nebraska, the reason for my trip on a cold morning in December, driving all the way across America to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, was to go snow skiing. And we couldn't get there on I-80 without going through Nebraska. And our church is in a similar moment. We are between where we were and whatever the place is that God will lead us. But we are going to get there. We're going to look around now and we're going to look around later and see that things are different. But just like my friends and I found out, but even more in a certain way, we're going to get where we're going. Ours was just a human trip. It could have easily gone awry. Thanks to the grace of God, it didn't, but it could have easily gone awry. But this trip is guaranteed because the Holy Spirit is leading. And I'm going to end where this scripture does. It's the best encouragement I have for you this morning. The end of the passage, I'll read it again. This is Luke chapter 4, verse 13. After all the testing, Luke chapter 4, verse 13 says, And so when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. I'm going to end where the scripture does because the devil leaves Christ alone, but the father and spirit never will. There's this flip side where you're kind of at the beginning saying, why would the spirit lead 
the faithful, obedient, loving son of God and insert ourselves into that situation. Why would the spirit lead me into this kind of situation? How did I, I don't like this. I was going toward the canal and now I'm in Provincetown. I didn't want to get on the bus with Satan as the driver. I don't know what's going on. Why would this be happening to me? The scriptures say that the devil leaves Christ, but the father and the spirit never do. And the same is true for you. When the Spirit leads you into wilderness, into a place of temptation, into a place of struggle and bewilderment and confusion and loss and grief and all that you got to work through, all that you might be working through, you're never lost because you're always led. I know the Spirit has us where we are, but look at all the good things that have happened even in just a few weeks. We've got people in South Africa for the first time doing a Youth for Christ camp. We didn't come up with that. God has been setting that in motion forever, and he continues doing it right now. We have a new worship leader who's surrendered to God and serving us in wonderful ways. We have great activities for children and youth. A women's Bible study is starting in a few weeks. People are getting baptized. We're having a salad competition. This is important. This is important. The people who were at last year's salad competition didn't quit loving the people who won. Still here. God is continuing to work. As you continue your journey, trust in God. You're not lost. You are always led. Let's pray. Spirit, we praise you. We exalt you. There were earlier times in my life when I really thought I had life figured out. I had my plans, had my goals, had my schedule. <laughs> had all of my stuff ready to go, thought I really knew what was happening. And then come the curveballs, and then come the twists, and then come the surprises, and I find myself wondering what is going on. Thank you that you're always leading us. Most of the time we don't realize it until it's sort of too late and we're really far into it. But what I see in the pages of scripture today is that we're not the first people to find ourselves in that situation. And you never leave us, and you never forsake us, and you always help us. And the way through the wilderness is not that complicated. It's not without its fears, it's not without its confusion, but the way through it, thanks to you, Jesus, is secured forever by your life and your death and your resurrection. And the way through it is illustrated for us so clearly. Number one, we're not alone. And two, we can quote your word. We can resist the devil and watch him flee from us. We have victory because you have the victory, and we give you the glory and the honor and the praise. You have the name that is above every name, and you are the reason that we are never lost and always led. Amen.